This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Matthew chapter 27. If you're here last week, we began this series that we started last Sunday. Today, we'll continue Friday evening with our Good Friday a communion service, and then next Sunday on Easter Sunday, epic transformations. And we saw the first epic transformation I wanted to bring out uh, in this series, and that was when the sinless Son of God became sin. The sinless Son of God became sin. We read in, in 1 Corinthians, and, and the result of that, 2 Corinthians, the result of that death and that payment for sin, as he satisfied the requirement for sin to be paid by his death, the result of that was our reconciliation with God. We were able to come where we had never been since the time before Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Mankind had never been one with God prior to that, and it enabled us to be reconciled with him. And that means this, listen church, the moment any one of us recognizes in our lives that we are lost in our sin, and that our only hope is a Savior, and we then accept Jesus Christ as the Savior, and the sacrifice that God gave for us, that very simple act of faith, believing in him, John 3.16, that very simple act of faith makes the gap that was between God and you and me, makes it disappear. And at that very moment, we become God's children. And nothing else, remember Jesus said, it is finished. Tetelestai, we looked at that word last week. Paid in full, nothing else can be done. Now today's epic transformations are actually three that are often overlooked but I believe significant and supernatural events that took place during Jesus' crucifixion and immediately following his death. And, and there are three of them that are mentioned in Matthew 27. It's interesting that this is my 25th Easter season to preach to you. And I've never preached on these things, all right? You say, how can that possibly be? Let me just tell you, the word of God is full of stuff. All right, we'll never get to it all in my lifetime, I can promise you that. But there are three things here that took place here and mentioned here in Matthew 27 and some other places as well, and all are related to what happened on the cross. Mark's gospel tells us this. He's the only gospel that tells us when Jesus was crucified, what time it was when he was nailed to the cross. And Mark tells us it was nine o'clock in the morning. Remember, he had been up all night being tried in several places and so been beaten and and all those things happened during the night. 9 a.m., he's nailed to the cross and for three hours until noon, a number of things happened. We're gonna look at some of those on Friday night. And then when noon came, it brought about the first of the three transformations. The first transformation was meteorological or astronomical. I'm not sure which, but one of the two or maybe both, because at noon, when the sun was at its peak in the sky, something frankly frightening happened that affected everyone. Look at verse 45, Matthew chapter 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. From noon to three, it was like 3 a.m. It was dark in the whole land, it says there. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention the darkness. And it's also, interestingly, confirmed by three, at least three extra-biblical historians who lived in other regions. In other words, they weren't Bible characters. They weren't there then. They are in other places in the world, and they also mention this darkness that happened during this time. I don't think it would have been an eclipse where the moon blocks out the sun. We've all seen those. They happen every now and then. Why is that? Well, Jesus died on the Jewish holy day of Passover. And Passover's date is not determined by the calendar. Do you notice that Easter kind of bounces around every year? It's not the same. It's not like Christmas, December 25th. Easter, or this year it's in March. Next year it's in April, early and late, and, and all those things. Easter bounces around because it's based on the lunar cycle, on the moon. The Jewish holy day of Passover is determined by the new moon in the Jewish calendar and occurs on the 14th day of the new moon. And on the 14th day of the new moon, if you know your astronomy, that's when we have a full moon on the 14th day. And when you have a full moon, if you look up in the sky, a full moon happens because the sun is over here, let's say, and the moon is over here directly facing the sun. And so the moon is getting the full brunt of the sun. And so you see on the entire face of the moon that we can see the reflection of the sun. And that's why it's called a full moon. It's completely round and completely lit up by the sun. So an eclipse of the sun being blocked out by the moon when one's here and one's there, and that's where they were this time of year when Jesus was crucified, would be impossible. So there must have been some other way, and I don't have a clue how this happened. But there was some other way that the sun's light was blocked, and it was dark in the middle of the day for three hours. Matthew was very specific to write that the darkness lasted from noon to 3 p.m., and it's interesting that all my theologians that I, that I read and I study, they, they all say the same thing. It was during these three hours, if we were to go back to last Sunday, it was during these three hours that Christ bore and became our sin and was abandoned by, by the Father. So it really makes a whole lot of sense. If that's what was happening spiritually, if that was happening between God and his Son, when God turned his back on Jesus Christ because Christ became sin that makes a whole lot of sense. That at the greatest moment of sorrow ever in the history of ever, of everything, we can't say in the history of the world because they're eternal. They go beyond the history of the world. The greatest moment of sorrow and the greatest moment of God's anger because his wrath was poured out on his son, the earth became dark. Again, scientifically, I don't know of any explanation, but it certainly was during this three-hour period of darkness, sometime during this time, when Jesus cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? Sometime then, after three, between three and four o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus died. And what's very interesting is that that would be the time that the offering of the evening sacrifice was taking place. That would be the time, it's Passover, when the Passover lamb was killed by the priest at the temple, sometime between three and four. A second transformation was theological in this story. In Matthew chapter 27, in verse 50, down through the first part of verse 51, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. That's when he died. And suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top 
to bottom. Now, what is this curtain of the sanctuary? It's in the temple. We have a picture of the temple up on the screen. And that big part of the temple and all this in there in the front is the temple as well. But the big part in the back is where the holy place was. And just beyond that, another room that was known as the holiest place or the holy of holies. And the priests were there doing the sacrifices. And right about that time while they were in there, this curtain, there was this curtain that hung. Matthew, if you have a, have a King James Bible, it says the first word in that that we read about the curtains, the first word there is lo, L-O, lo. We don't use that word in English today much. But let me give you the Rick Lawrence and paraphrase for lo, all right? And really, this is what the Greek meaning for the word there is. It's kind of like, whoa, look at that. The priests are in there offering the sacrifice, and suddenly the temple... In the temple, this curtain, this huge curtain, was ripped from top to bottom, and they stopped and went, low. You know, what is this about? It was an amazing thing, a humanly impossible thing, something that never happened before. Low, that's impossible, low. The curtain was called the veil of the covering. It was there to hide the holiest place, a small room, again, behind the holy place. The design of the tabernacle, by the way, and the temple was based on the design of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that they had as they traveled from Egypt to the Holy Land, uh, to the Promised Land. And then they kept for a number of years until Solomon built the first temple. And the temple was built based on the design of the tabernacle, only bigger and more magnificent. But the tabernacle and the holy place and the holiest place were all God's design. God said, this is how you build it. And no one but the high priest was allowed to go beyond that curtain and enter that small room. And no one was allowed to see what was behind that curtain. Why not? Because what was behind that curtain represented the presence of God. You remember as the tabernacle traveled from place to place, God, a pillar by fire and a a pillar of cloud in the day and the night, God was resting over that place, that room, in the tabernacle. It represented the presence of God. It was the holiest place on earth. And nobody could go in but the high priest and nobody could see it because God does not tolerate being in the presence of sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says about God, your eyes are too, too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. By the way, that also explains why God, maybe you still, I still don't understand why God turned his back on Jesus on the cross. That verse explains it. Because he became sin, and God can't tolerate sin. Hidden from view, what was in that room in the holiest place? Hidden from view were several things. The Ark of the Covenant was there. If you've seen Indiana Jones' first movie, you understand what that looks like. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and that was a real thing. There was a pot of manna from the manna that God fed them with during their wilderness journey. Aaron's rod this stick that he, walking stick that suddenly had been a piece of dead wood for who knows how long, burst into bloom. Aaron's rod and the tablets of the Ten Commandments were found in this room. And they were there by God's order and by God's design. And on top of this Ark of the Covenant, this box, two golden cherubim facing each other, bowing their heads, their wings pointed toward one another. On the top of that box was a thing called, was a place called the mercy seat. And there the blood of the sacrifice on the annual day of atonement, which comes in October, typically, Yom Kippur, 
The blood was then taken by the priest from a, from a bowl that he had captured as the animal was slain, and with his finger he spattered it on the mercy seat after confessing his own sins and then the sins of the nation. Nobody could go in there but the priest, and he only one time a year. And the penalty for anyone unqualified going in there was death. You could not survive being in the presence of God. The second thing about this curtain was that it was massive. The, the curtain, the veil, was an elaborately woven fabric of 72 twisted plates of, set of 24 threads each. And the veil was 60 feet long. Some say the Jewish tradition is, is it was as thick as a man's hand is wide. That's how thick the material was of that curtain. Sixty feet long, thirty feet wide, in other words, it hung sixty feet. Thirty feet wide. Humanly speaking, it would have been impossible for a man to tear it, much less from sixty feet up, unless you had a really tall cherry picker or boom lift and a chainsaw. Would have been impossible for man to do that. The moment it was torn, there would have been, again, priests there in the temple carrying out their Passover duties, and they would have most likely witnessed this happening. Again, there is no human or natural explanation for its being torn. Therefore, like the darkness, this must have been an act of God. A third transformation that we read about in this chapter is this, in verse 51, the latter part of the verse, where it says, the earth quaked and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake that happened when Jesus gave up his life and died on the cross. Now, I like darkness. You know, if it got dark, I mean, it's, it's kind of dark outside right now with the overcast skies, but it's, you know, you, you didn't need a flashlight to get into the building. You know, you, you could see this was dark. That gets everybody's attention in the middle of the day, don't you know? It's not normally what happens. It's an anomaly. Well, this was as well an earthquake, Earthquakes get our attention. I know that. I've been, been in an earthquake, and I can confess to you it's a scary thing. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, was not a Christian, but lived in the first century, in one of his books tells of a quaking in the temple before the destruction of the temple, and the Talmud tells of a quaking 40 years before the destruction of the temple, and the destruction of the temple happened in the year 70 AD. So you back up 40 years and you get the year 30, most likely the year that Jesus was crucified. But along with the earthquake came another phenomenon. Here's the one that will get many people's attentions this morning. In verse 52, it says, the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Some translations say the saints who had fallen asleep or the saints who slept, which is a frequent Bible way of saying we're dead. It's like us today saying, we don't say that. When somebody's dead, we say they're dead. Oh, really? Not, how many of you have ever said, rest in peace? Rest, you know, as, as though you're taking a nap or something. They were dead. These bodies were dead. And now some of you are really tuning in because some of you don't. I don't want you to raise your hand and tell me what you're thinking, but some of you are thinking zombies. I knew they were real. No, they're not zombies. In fact, the idea of zombies, for those of you who are fascinated by that, the idea of zombies comes from voodoo and it comes from the occult. And please understand, God does not dabble in such things. I don't believe he wants us to do either. But apparently the earthquake opened up selective tombs. Not all of them, 
but only the tombs, it says, of the saints or the righteous. And verse 53 adds some understanding to verse 52 because it says, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, which would have happened on Sunday, on Easter. They came out of their tombs, entered the holy city in Jerusalem, and appeared to many. The scriptures are not really explicit here. But here's likely what happened. At Jesus' death, the earthquake opened the tombs of some believers who had most likely recently died and would be recognizable because it said they appeared to many. Well, you would recognize somebody who had died within the last recent time, somebody you knew. Somebody died who lived 100 years ago, or you know, if Abraham showed up, nobody would know what he looked like because they didn't have cameras back then and so forth. But somebody recently who died, when Lazarus stepped out of the tomb a week before this, everybody knew who he was. They recognized him. Jesus had done something similar when, with Lazarus. And although the graves were opened by the earthquake, they remained in their graves. The dead remained in the graves until Easter morning after Jesus rose from the dead. The graves are open, but they didn't come out till Easter morning. Did, now, here's a question. Well, what happened later? I mean, they got up and they're alive again. Did they go on living and then die again? Did they ascend to heaven when Jesus did? And the answer is, I don't know, because the Bible doesn't say. Well, that's an, write that down, and when you get to heaven, ask God that question, all right? And they'll be, he'll be glad to answer that for you. All this happened between these different things, the darkness, uh, the, the temple, the curtain, the, the earthquake, the graves opening, all this happened between noon and 4 o'clock. The darkness from noon to 3, the temple, the curtain torn, and so forth. And then they happened simultaneously with the death of Christ, which was sometime between three and four in the afternoon. What were these things? I mean, they were anomalies. They were never seen that before kind of thing happened. What were they? Very simply, I believe what they were was God's way of making it clear to believers and unbelievers alike that the death of his son on the cross was not any ordinary death because he was not any ordinary man. Something that's never happened before was happening. In fact, with each of these amazing, miraculous happenings, I believe there are spiritual lessons for us. And I say that because God doesn't act in supernatural ways just because he can. God doesn't get up in the morning. Well, you say, wait a second, preacher. God doesn't get up in the morning because God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God's always awake. Exactly. But let me use, just kind of, so to help us, God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I wonder what fun, supernatural thing I can perform today just because I can. He doesn't do that. When God performs supernatural things in this world, he does so to teach us to get our attention, to instruct us in something. And so that's what God was doing there. He does these things to illustrate and to teach us truth. What are these things that he was teaching? Number one, if I hope you're taking notes today, the darkness in this world is caused by sin and pictures judgment. Now, I'm not talking about the darkness when the sun goes down before the sun comes up. I'm talking about the darkness that pervades our lives, the darkness that pervades our culture the darkness that seems to be in control of so much that happens in this world is caused by sin and it pictures judgment. We often refer to the evil in this world as darkness or when something especially evil happens as that was a dark time in our lives. 
And the Bible uses the same ideas. For example, Matthew chapter 4, verse 16 says, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. The great light was Christ. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light, and for those living in the shadow land of death, light has dawned. John three nineteen. Jesus said, people love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. The angels who joined Satan in the rebellion against God and, and uh, the unbelievers in the Old Testament, the Bible says, are kept in hell, a place of darkness. Jude verse 6, it says he is kept and with eternal chains in darkness for the judgment of the great day, angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling. And in that same context... In Jude 6 is included those who didn't believe God when they came out of Egypt. Remember that time that the earth swallowed up so many because they did not believe? They made that calf to worship. The earth swallowed them up. The residents of Sodom and Gomorrah are included in that passage in Jude as people who are in darkness. And we saw last Sunday that Jesus became our sin on the cross and he took our judgment. He died our death. And so these three hours of darkness were when he actually did that, if you will. So it's really not a stretch to understand, again, that during this time, when the only spiritual light this world has ever seen, the light of the world, the only spiritual light that this world has ever seen became sin. And the Father turned his back on Jesus, and in doing so, judged our sin in Christ. And the earthly environment of man that Jesus created, by the way, let there be light and there was light. The earthly environment that we live in today was to go dark. Number two, the separation between God and us has been removed. Here's another lesson. The separation, we talked about the reconciliation last week, the separation between God and us that the curtain represented It's been removed. The cross opened up access to God for anyone who believes. That's an amazing thought. When that temple, that, that curtain was torn, it was saying to all the world, now you can come to God. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to make some meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself. He had to put on new, or not new, but special and clean clothing. He had to bring a pot of burning incense that made smoke so that when he entered into the holy of place, it was a smoky room because he was not to be able to see the presence of God clearly. It was still to be hidden by the smoke in the room. Could not have a direct view of God. And he brought with him blood to cover his sins and the sins of the nation. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, writes a lot about these things and helps us understand these things, especially as Gentiles. Because the book of Hebrews was written to who? Hebrews. They were believers in Jesus, but they were Jewish. And it goes to great lengths to explain all these things that I'm talking about right now, what they mean. Verse 9 Chapter 9, verse 7 says, But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. He had to come with that blood of the sacrifice, which he offered for himself, and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. But then Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross changed all of that. 
The veil was torn, and now when it was torn, the Holy of Holies was exposed. Now you could look into that temple, and you could see what was back there. And it was now accessible to all. And shocking as this may have been to those priests who were ministering in the temple that day and wondering, what horrible thing is this? It was not a horrible thing. It was the good news that God is now open to everyone. God is now welcoming everyone. It's good news to us as believers because we know that Jesus' death provided forgiveness for our sins and made us right before God. The torn veil, the Bible says, the curtain represents illustrated Jesus' body broken for us, opening the way for us to come to God. And it also taught this, the age of animal offerings was over. There is no more need to sacrifice goats and lambs and bulls on the altars anymore in sacrifice. That was done, finished, because the ultimate offering had been sacrificed. And we today have the privilege of coming to God as the priest came into the holy place. We now can come into the, to the presence of God because our sacrifice has been made by Christ on the cross. Our sins have been, we come in clean and in white garments because our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have access to God because of Jesus' death. And now we can boldly enter God's presence because Jesus, our sacrifice, opened opened up the way. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter, we have confidence. Now we can go into the most holy place. Stop for a second. Here's what I'm going to tell you that some of you are going to wrestle with, especially if you come out of a Roman Catholic background. But because we can now enter the holy place, that makes us priests. All right? Stay with me. Confident. To enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Again, his body represents the torn curtain. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The holy of holies, the holiest place, the inner sanctuary, also is a representation of heaven itself, God's dwelling place, where now we have access through Christ Again, from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself, hear me now, again and again. Last week we went through several scriptures that said Jesus died for our sins once for all. The cross is never again to be repeated, which is why we do not celebrate a mass. Why not? Because a mass says this bread becomes his body. This wine becomes his blood. And the mass is an offering of Christ on the cross over and over and over again. And the Bible says Jesus died on that cross how many times? Once for how long? For all and for all people. All right, please get that. He doesn't enter it again and again to offer himself the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. But now he has appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages to do away with with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so that tells us the next point. We no longer need priests. There's a great doctrine that we believe, and that is the priesthood of the believer. You are a priest, Christian. Every believer at the moment of faith becomes a priest because why? Because you and I have the privilege of going directly to God. I can confess my sin directly to God. I do not need to go to any man and tell him what I've done. I go straight to God. When I pray, I do not pray through a saint. I do not pray through Mary. I pray through who? My high priest, Jesus Christ. I go directly to God through Christ, who is our one and only mediator between God and man. All because Jesus, the high priest, made the sacrifice once for all. Peter wrote to the first century believers, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Who was he writing to? Was he writing just to those who've been to seminary? And, and so, no, he's writing to Christians. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by believing in Christ, And Christ alone, that salvation that comes with that faith allows you and me to be in the presence of Almighty God right now, right here now as we worship. When I bow my head and I go directly to his throne in prayer, I'm ushered into the presence of God and you are as well. And that's all because of the cross, all because of the torn curtain. And it was torn to show that to all. Number three, Jesus' death conquered death. What? Jesus' death conquered death. What that means is this. In the opening of the graves, at the moment of Jesus' death, there was a symbolical proclamation that the death that had just taken place on the cross had, quote, swallowed up death in victory. And the saints that slept there in those open graves, they did not come out until Jesus was the first fruit, the first to rise from the dead. The saints that slept there were awakened by their risen Lord on Sunday morning to accompany him out of the tomb. But he had to die. And then he had to rise first three days later. Paul boldly told King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, the king there in Jerusalem, quote in Acts 26, verse 23, he said that the Messiah must suffer and that As the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles. Those are the greatest truths of truths to us. But they mean nothing, church, please hear me. These things that I've shared, boy, those are fascinating. Got dark, curtain torn, earthquake, rocks split, graves opened. They mean nothing if we don't respond to them by allowing them to change our lives. So how should I respond? If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, claiming him as your savior, you still remain in darkness and judgment. Maybe you're here today, you've never done that. You've never accepted Christ. How do you know that, Rick? Well, John 3, 18 says, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is condemned Already, because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. 
What do I need to do? How do I need to respond to be set free from that you, that condemnation? You need to simply acknowledge that because of your sin, you are in need of a Savior and receive Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as your salvation. But most of us in this room say, I've already done that. How do I respond? If you're a Christian, please hear me. There is no need for you to continue to live your life in darkness. None. I guess I'm living in darkness if the things of, how do I know I'm living in darkness? If the things of this dark world appeal to me more than the things that God has for me, I'm living in darkness. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say, quote, we have fellowship with him, unquote, and walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So maybe for you, Christian, today might be the day when you decide that as a Christian, it's really high time I stop trying to hold on to light with one hand and darkness with the other at the same time. Because when you, let me tell you, because I've seen it for how many years that I've been a Christian and many years that I've been a pastor, when I see somebody try to do that, darkness wins almost every time, pulls them down. And even Christians who have been saved by faith somehow think they still have to somehow prove to God that they're worthy of being in his family. No, you don't. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. You need to stop and accept that Jesus tore the curtain and that you have access to God, not because of the things you do. You have access to God because of his work on the cross and not because you're trying so hard to please him. That's not what it's about at all. What response do you need to make today? We're going to close out with a song right now. And after the song, I'm going to ask our pastors to come up here to be available to pray with you. But what response do you need to make today? Would you bow your heads with me as I pray? Transformations, God, last week you, 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 your son became sin so that we might be reconciled to you. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And because of that standing in righteousness, whenever I sin, Lord, it's not as you don't look at me and say, now you got to start all over. You look and see me as righteous in Christ that my sin has been washed. By him, you poured out all your judgment for everything that I have ever done on Jesus. So today, Lord, however we need to respond, whether it's I need to respond by believing in Jesus as Savior, may that person, as someone did last Sunday, may today be the start of a brand new life. And if there are Christians here today, God, who are still trying to hold on to darkness with one hand and light in the other, may they let go of the darkness and realize you've torn the curtain so that they might walk in light. Help us to respond to you and your spirit as you lead us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.